He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our wickedness, for he knows whereof we are made. He remembers that we are but dust. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please be seated. Several weeks ago, I was in Father Scott's office discussing various things with him, and he asked me if I would preach on Ash Wednesday. Now, I don't know much, but one thing I do know, when the rector asks the associate rector to preach, there pretty much is only one acceptable answer, so I happily gave that answer. But shortly after, I began to have second thoughts, not because I don't enjoy preaching or think that I, excuse me excuse me, or think that I should be exempt from preaching. Not because I think you wonderful people here are not worthy of my profound thoughts and eloquent words. No, my second thoughts revolved around the occasion of the day, Ash Wednesday. I thought to myself, why do I have to give everyone the bad news? Why do I have to remind everyone that they are wretched sinners in need of God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness, struggling hard on this earth, only to try and rest at night, pondering their ultimate mortality? Well, needless to say, I didn't go back to Father Scott and inform him that I would rather preach on Easter Sunday so that I can give the good news of the salvation, true life, peace, and freedom wrought by Christ through his death and resurrection. Now I started praying and asking God to give me the words he would have for you on this day. And by his grace and Holy Spirit, may that be. I've always found Ash Wednesday and Lent to be a bittersweet occasion. It's like having a difficult conversation that you know is necessary and ultimately fruitful. Now I enjoy having difficult conversations but my enjoyment of them doesn't make them any easier. And I don't mean to say that having difficult conversations in which terrible news is shared or where hurt feelings are the result make me happy or bring me pleasure. What I mean is that I have found it to be my experience that much growth and the deepening of relationships is often found in having hard conversations. And I think Ash Wednesday and Lent is similar. I don't need to stand in this pulpit and solemnly remind you of your mortality. Between what we've experienced over the past two years with COVID and many of us losing close friends and family members along the way due to various causes, we understand at some point in our lives that we will take our last breath and enter eternity. And I think that those of us gathered here would be quick to affirm our sinfulness if we are being honest with ourselves and with each other. We may like to point the finger at the sin of others, but we know the truth. We are much more alike than different, especially when it comes to our failings, insecurities, shortcomings, and weaknesses. The same sickness affects us all. And here we can begin to see the goodness of the season of Lent. I want to give you a bit of context. We are participating in an ancient tradition of the church. The first mention of something like a season of Lent dates back to the first council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And it references a period of 40 days of fasting 
with the number with the number 40 corresponding to the 40-day fasts of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus as referenced in scripture. Perhaps not surprisingly, the Lenten fast was quite strict in the first several centuries of its observance. Only one meal a day was permitted, and it would not include any meat or any dairy products. Now, this is still the case for the Orthodox churches today. But by the ninth century, things were more relaxed. Specifically, the time of breaking the daily fast got gradually earlier and earlier from evening to three o'clock and then to noon. By the Middle Ages, fish was allowed to be eaten during Lent. And from the fifth century on, dairy products were more and more tolerated. The Anglican Church has no strict rule, as it were, about fasting. Perhaps it's like confession. No one must, anyone can, and some should. The Ash Wednesday service and custom of putting ashes on the foreheads of Christians, well, that dates to Pope Gregory the Great in the seventh century. And during that time, Christians came to the church for forgiveness, and Gregory marked their foreheads with ashes, reminding them of the biblical symbol of repentance, sackcloth and ashes, and their mortality, as he said, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And I tell you this to highlight that the service of Ash Wednesday and the observance of the season of Lent is an ancient tradition of the church with a strong biblical basis. This ties us to our ancestors. It ties us to those who passed on the faith from one generation to the next. This is the tradition of the church. Now, the Old Testament has many passages that reference the use of ashes as a way of symbolizing grief and repentance. You can think of Jeremiah. You can think of Job. And the New Testament exhortations for the Christian to practice self-examination, penitence, and self-denial are numerous. We can recall the words of St. Paul to the church at Corinth. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. We remember the words of St. Peter in his letter as he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And finally, we can think on what John the Baptist and our Lord himself first preached when they proclaimed, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, a few moments ago, I mentioned the goodness of Lent. And by this point, you may be wondering what I meant by that or where I'm going with this. And I think, again, we begin to see the goodness of Lent when we realize that this season gives us the time and space to reflect, to pray, to discuss weighty things, most likely with ourselves, with, with those we trust, to repent, and to change our actions and habits based on our repentance. It's all too easy to allow unhelpful thoughts, attitudes, and perspectives to creep into our lives and take root into our hearts. We need the season of Lent so that the Holy Spirit can do his sanctifying work of grace in our lives. We need the season of Lent to have some difficult conversations with ourselves, with God, so that, we can turn our, so that God can turn our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Despite what we may think or feel, Lent is good for us. It's not meant to be punishment or condemning. It's meant to be liberating and fruitful. It is not easy for us, but it is good for us.
I'm reminded of Father Justin Clemente's words to us this past Sunday when he described our desire to skip the suffering of the cross and proceed directly to the glory of the resurrection. But you see, we need that suffering of the cross. We need to walk through the valley with God. I've heard some say, one cannot get to Easter Sunday without going through Good Friday. And we need that. So as one of my professors would say around campus, joy and happiness in Lent. It's not meant to be this dour, terrible time in which we just think we're the worst people ever. There is joy and happiness to be had. Now with this introduction, I want to turn our attention back to our, our ancestors we first read about in Scripture. If you pray morning prayer, according to the Book of Common Prayer, you'll know that the daily office lectionary always begins the year with Genesis. And I've been listening to a podcast that's been tracing certain themes found in Genesis as I've been reading through it. And that's taken me about two months. So you, you might say that this sermon has been growing within me now for about six or seven weeks. One thing I've become more and more convinced as I read through Genesis and, and think on it is that with each passing year that we get further and further away from those we read about, Adam and Eve, Jacob and Esau, Abraham and Sarah, we're still just like them. In fact, we're more like them than we would care to admit. And I want to take a few minutes to explore that commonality. So let's go back to the beginning, to Genesis. We're well acquainted with the story of Eden, Adam and Eve being put there to cultivate it and keep it. We're aware of God's warning to the man, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We remember how things go with the serpent and the woman. He plants seeds of doubt in her mind by questioning God's commands and seriousness. She is deceived by the serpent, and she eats from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She gives the fruit to Adam, and he eats. Here is the first sin, and it raises the question, what in the world happened? Now, much has been said and written about the fall of humanity in Genesis 3, and much more will be said and written with each new crop of biblical scholars and pastors, and we can't explore every aspect right now tonight. But I do want to focus on the aspect of the man and woman's act of seeing and taking the fruit. And I want to think about how we still share in that desire to see and take for ourselves. I want to consider how this is repeated in other accounts in Genesis. And I want us to think about what God has offered to us in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that in Eden, God gave every good gift to Adam and Eve. There was nothing lacking in God's provision for them. They were God's crowning achievement in the creation narrative. That narrative tells us that on the first day, God saw the light that was brought into existence as good. So right away, we see that what God creates is good. The narrative goes on to tell us several more times that what God created was good. Finally, we're told on the, at the end of the sixth day, after humanity's creation, that God looked at all he had created, and it was very good. Among the created order, we are the apex, and we're the only part of creation that has been created in God's image and likeness. 
Now, along with the creatures that live in the sea and fly in the air, humanity was blessed and given license to be fruitful and increase in number. Not only that, but humanity was given the honor of ruling over the rest of creation as image bearers of God. Humans were to be his faithful stewards alongside him. Humans would enjoy his holy presence all their days. They would live in peace and harmony with nature and with one another as they lived in peace and harmony with God. It should not come as any surprise that the word Eden means pleasure or delight. Eden and humanity's existence in Eden was to be full of pleasure and delight. The instructions were simple enough. You are free to eat from every tree in the garden, but one. Do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. God was telling the man and woman, trust me on this one. I know what is good and right and best for you. Follow my instructions and it will go well with you. You will be blessed. Just trust me on this. But the humans were weak. The humans were created with the ability to not sin, but they did not fully live into that reality. The fruit was seen good for food, pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom. So it was taken and eaten. Humanity's eyes were opened like they had never been opened before, and there was no turning back. The ability to not sin had been lost. Now there was the inability to not sin. Humanity cannot help but sin. Humanity cannot live in perfect peace and harmony with creation, with one another, and with God. There is distrust, envy, corrupted desires for power and affection, and even open hostility. And why? Because humans did not trust God and receive from him what he was offering. Instead, humans took for themselves as they saw fit. God wanted to give us everything, but we wanted to take only one thing. Now, this theme of taking is repeated several more times in Genesis. And I agree with biblical scholar Tim Mackey that these subsequent accounts of unrighteous taking are meant to remind the reader of the first unrighteous taking in Genesis 3. Our first instance in this account is the account of Abraham and Sarah, still known as Abram and Sarai. We find that in Genesis 16. At this point in the story of Abraham, he's been promised the land of Canaan by God. He's gone down to Egypt and come back to Canaan, a very rich man. He's already had to rescue his nephew Lot from disaster. And God has already established his covenant with him. Overall, Abraham and Sarah, by extension, they've done quite well. Well, that whole little she's my sister bit in Egypt notwithstanding. But he has no son. And he's been promised descendants as numerous as the sand on the shore and the stars in the sky. And this is a problem for Sarah as well. She had borne Abraham no children. And this was to her shame. I'm pretty sure that she was hoping God's promises to Abraham included her. We know that even today, the inability to conceive and give birth can be a way to marginalize women, and a great stigmatization comes with it. 
How much more was this the case in their context? I do not think it is much of a stretch to see Abraham and Sarah as desperate and wanting to help God keep his word to them. In her moment of weakness, Sarah looked around to see what she could do. Her eyes fell on Hagar, her Egyptian servant. The solution has presented itself. So we read in Genesis 16 that Sarai said to Abram, Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. And Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. Problem solved. If the Lord had just listened to the humans all along, this whole descendant thing could have been sorted out much sooner. Well, we know that's not the case. Disaster would quickly follow. And I wonder what Hagar thought of this arrangement. A forced marriage and a forced pregnancy? This could not be the way of a holy and righteous God, but only the way of a sinful and distrusting humanity. You fast forward to Genesis uh, in the account of two brothers and their father, Esau, Jacob, and Isaac. Early in the story, Esau does not value the birthright of the oldest son, and he trades it away for some stew. Now, Jacob may not have stolen Esau's birthright, but he certainly took advantage of his brother. Late in the story, when it's time for Isaac to bless his firstborn son, Jacob again gets over on Esau by deceiving his old and blind father and gets the blessing that should have gone to Esau. When his deceit is discovered by his dad and brother, Isaac said to Esau, your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau's response is telling as he cried out, isn't he rightly named Jacob, deceiver? He has deceived me these two times. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. The only thing left for Esau after that was some form of a secondary blessing that sounds more like a curse. We see in this account the same lack of trust in Jacob that we saw in Adam and Eve and in Abraham and Sarah. You see, Jacob surely knew what God had told his mother, Rebekah, when she was pregnant with, with twins. Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples will be separated from you. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Jacob was not willing to trust that he would be blessed by God on God's terms. Jacob had to make it happen for himself. And finally, we come to the account of Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, and his brothers. Surely these sons knew of the blessing given to their great-grandfather Abraham and it being passed down to their grandfather Isaac and ultimately it being passed on to Jacob, their father. It would have been well known by this point. Jacob's sons would have known that they were a blessed family through whom God would bless the entire world if they would just trust and follow him. However, the youngest son at that time could not keep his dreams to himself. His older brothers, and even Jacob, scolded him for the boldness he had in telling them that they would find themselves bowing down to him. His second dream even had the sun, moon, and stars, 
a reference to the great lights ruling the day in Genesis 1, bowing down to him. Now, I have no doubt if I were one of the older brothers, I would have had some strong feelings toward, J- toward Joseph. And so we read in Genesis 37 that when the brothers saw Joseph coming toward them in the distance, they plotted to kill him. The text goes on to state, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Essentially, he was thrown into a pit into the ground. And what we see again is that there is no trust in God that he will deliver on his promises of blessing. Joseph's brothers saw him as a source of discomfort rather than a conduit of God's blessing. They would take another human and sell him into slavery. This is what human trafficking in ancient times looked like. What we see in all of these accounts is what it looks like to be dead even when still alive. We see lives full of hatred, jealousy, brokenness and dysfunction, violence and distrust and hostility. Loved ones, please tell me that in 2022, humanity has nothing in common with the humanity as described in Genesis. So what are we to do with these accounts on this day? A day set, set aside to remind us of our sinfulness, individually and corporately, and our mortality, physically and spiritually. I think this is where we spend time over the next six weeks asking ourselves in the Lord, where have we trusted in things other than him and his promises? This is a season to examine where we have taken what we have determined is in our best interests rather than in listening to God to hear from him what is good, holy, right, and true. After some intentional thought and introspection, we can begin to discern the attitudes, the frailties and insecurities, if you like, the hurts, habits, and hang-ups, which lead us to lean more on our own understanding rather than entrusting in the Lord with all our heart. Perhaps over the next six weeks, we can ponder what we have been taking so that we may see how it lines up with what our Lord Jesus has told us to take. Have we taken up our cross to die to ourselves and our sinful nature daily? Are we continuing to do that? Have we taken his yoke, light as it is, upon us? Are we continuing to do that as well? And finally, right here in just a few minutes, we can accept his invitation to come and take his body, which was broken for us, and eat of it. To what end, you may ask? To the end that we might receive the forgiveness of our sins, the salvation of our souls, and truly bear the image in which we were so wonderfully created. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.